the problem with the leaks in general is that the first period, 2004 to 2011, was such an illiquid period for the VIX products themselves that it's, it's very difficult to actually make any meaningful assumption based on these real prices that you see. So you, what you would have to assume is you would have to assume a slippage model that is independent of the experience that you had back there, or even if you didn't have any experience, just because um, it was very difficult to trade in that environment. And the VIX itself was way too calm and uh, the volatility of the VIX was too little. And so it was a very advantageous position if you managed to do that, to just be short the VIX and short the S&P or just be short the VIX, you made money very easily because uh, of the way it was priced. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Jason Buck, to host a sequence of in-depth conversations on the topic of volatility. In today's world, the concept of volatility has moved to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. With ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, knowing if you are essentially long or short volatility in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin or survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized investors and the processes they follow to harness their returns in order to make all of us better informed investors. And with that, please welcome Jason Buck. Thank you, Niels, for the introduction. My special guest today is Stefan Winter from the Dunn World Volatility Program. Today, we're going to talk about all things volatility, trading the VIX, relative value VIX trading, and even bringing in some tail protection. So we'll get into what all those things mean. But Stefan, I'm going to start with an easy question that's probably the hardest question we always have to deal with, is in your personal opinion, why should someone include volatility in their portfolio? Well, first, hi to everyone, and thanks for having me today, Jason and uh, Niels. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks also for that question. I like it because obviously it gives directly to the heart of what I'm doing and why I actually should be in this business. That being said, I actually assume you're talking about why you should include protection against all events and tail risk because very likely you actually have some tail risk in your portfolio already. If you view it that way, I think it's very clear. Since you have that kind of risk exposure and assuming you want to maximize your risk-adjusted return and very likely also your absolute return if you do it right, you will want a strategy or you want exposure to something that will help you during periods where your traditional portfolio or your risky assets do less well or actually suffer some stress like in 2020 or also in 2008, 2011 or any crisis you could think of. Just thinking back in history, it's, it actually was a very simple question just for the last, let's say, 40 years or so, because you had this savior in your portfolio that did well, actually, regardless of the market environment, which were bonds. So you had a component that gave you a nice positive carry and also gave you some bump whenever the risky assets had a rough period. And that was a not just a nice feature, it was actually an extraordinary period because during that period, bonds outperformed anything in the more risky world on risk-adjusted terms. And so you had an asset that not only gave you protection, but it also gave you positive returns. Now, going forward, if you think of the current situation, you have yields that are so low that even if correlation will stay negative between the risky assets and bonds, it's very unlikely that you'll have this bump in uh, in performance once risky assets go sour. And so you might want to think about uh, replacing part of your portfolio or part of the protection with something that can do well, that can offer a convex PL profile, something that will do really well, exceptionally well during uh, equity market stress, especially. 
And I personally think that the volatility can be such an asset. And if done correctly, it can accomplish many of the features that bonds have previously accomplished, meaning not costing a constant insurance premium as a typical insurance would be, but to produce those, uh, those uh, very steep returns when equity markets sell off. Therefore, I also think it should be an actively managed vault strategy. It cannot be a passive investment. A passive investment in the vault world will unfortunately lead to a very strong negative carry, meaning something that will cost you money on an ongoing basis with small positive or well, with positive returns in, in short periods of time. And even though that's helpful, obviously, I think in the long run for the overall average investor portfolio, it will be better to have an actively managed vault book. Great. And it's it's a tricky question. It's particularly, it's purposely vague just to see where you'll take it. So that was a great answer. I also wonder where, what is your stance on people that say volatility is its own asset class or volatility is the only asset class? First of all, I would say it's not an easy question to answer because from an asset class perspective, I think you can classify it as an asset class, but you're honest with yourself. You should assume that short wall is actually the asset class and short wall is as you coined it in the second term you used, is actually the only asset class because most of the other risky asset classes are to some degree short wall strategies too, whether it's an equity, a private equity, many hedge fund indices or um, strategies, they are all encompassed around um, earning some kind of carry return, which ultimately can be translated into a short wall position. From a more general perspective, I think if you compare it with with something as the classical asset classes, bonds or, or stocks, to keep it simple, I think... It is an, its own asset class because it has some characteristics of the others, but it also adds an additional risk premium or an additional potential on top of it. And therefore, it can diversify even though it appears as if it would be just a mirror image of the risky asset. And the actual academic papers on volatility or, or, or ideas for VIX calculation date back to like the late 80s. But we really didn't even have an actual VIX index or something that was tradable in the futures till 2004 roughly with like the VXO that eventually got changed to the VIX. But what I love is talking to somebody like you is like you were there at the very beginning and there's only a handful of you guys that were there at the very beginning to see this nascent market where it's only like maybe a dozen of you trading with each other and there's a lot of illiquidity in that market. What were those early days like in, the, in this nascent VIX market? Yeah, first of all, I would want to say that the market was very different back then than it is now. So the VIX was first a brand new product, but even even options, even though they were known and they were used for, for decades before that, they were not as popular as they were now, neither on absolute terms, but also in relative terms in comparison to the, the rest of the market. So trading was a very different experience back then, but also the behavior of that index itself and uh, or in general, volatility itself was very different. So obviously with um, modernization or computerization of, of the whole financial markets, things were moving at a very different pace back then than they are now. So what's happening in, in within seconds in in 2020 would have taken days in let's say 2005 obviously trading also was very different as you mentioned there were not that many people active and sometimes when I look at the Bloomberg trades or on the, on the, the trades in VIX on Bloomberg I actually even see my trades there because nobody else was doing any trades in 2005 I think one of the things that people should keep in mind though is especially when looking at data for for those products so regardless whether it's the VXO or the the VIX which are, by the way, pretty similar in my view. It's just a, a slightly better representation uh, using the new VIX calculation that they use since 2003, that the VIX index itself was very different back then. So all these things I just mentioned, but also the, the technicalities, how it is calculated and how, how volatility markets looked and behaved like in 2005, make it very difficult to compare the VIX at that time with the VIX uh, now, not just from a liquidity perspective, which obviously is very different, 
but also from a technical perspective. So how volatile is the VIX? How will it react to the S&P 500? And how does volatility move in general? I think doing that, you should uh, just be very cautious in, in analyzing data or, for example, testing strategies, because many of those strategies will, will look great during 2004 to 2011, but that mostly comes origins from the fact that nobody else was trading that product and you probably never could have implemented the strategy on a meaningful scalability anyway. Throughout this conversation, we're going to do a deeper dive into actually the, how the market, the VIX market has evolved and then also how the difficulties of, like you just referenced, backtesting any sort of volatility trading strategy. But let's let's start kind of from the top. Like you just said, the VIX calculation. What is the VIX and what is the calculation that goes into the VIX? For the VIX, first of all, I think people like to name, we call it the fear index. And that's easy because it's one number. And to some degree, it makes things easier too. So you just don't have to worry about too many things. But under the hood, it's not just one number. It's actually a multitude of numbers. And the way how those numbers are, are aggregated actually changed uh, a, multi- a couple of times uh, in, in the last uh, 20 years almost since they, they had this uh, current calculation formula because of the inclusion of different um, options uh, into the calculation, but also the way how um, the interpolation works. So just to take, take a step back, what I mean by, by it's not just one number is obviously volatility is... Uh, has to be split into different categories. So there's realized volatility, which is just what the S&P has done in the past. Then there's implied volatility, which is the normalization of the price of an option into a probability term. So uh, instead of comparing prices for options, you compare volatilities. It makes those different options and uh, different prices very easy to compare and also compare them over time. But the VIX index takes a bunch of option prices and weighs them according to a weighting formula that's dependent on the prices and also the strike uh, distances of the individual options. And by saying that, I think it already includes some of the the caveats in that calculation. So obviously, a strike difference is something that is is determined by the demand for individual options. And at the moment, options are very liquid. So almost any strike you can think of is priced and uh, available in the market, meaning you get anything from uh, the current uh, at the money strike price in five five point increments down to, let's say, uh, 50% below the current uh, at the money forward. But back in 2005, that was not always 100% true. So mostly actually the strikes that were quoted and actively traded were like in 25 or 50 points increments, which means you had a a much broader or much smaller set of options that was included. And um, given the way how the VIX is calculated, so as soon as there's an option or two two consecutive options that do not have a bid price, it's very easy to drop off uh, all the options below that. What that means is that um, if the distance between the strikes is pretty big, you can exclude a, a large part of uh, the strip quite easily that way. And um, that problem extends just because of the price of the of the S&P 500 too. So if you think of it now that we are at 4,500 or so, even a 50-point uh, strike difference would not be, not be that big. But in uh, 2008, and I recall that number because it was such a special number, when the S&P dropped to 666, well, 50 points is almost 10% of that of that index. So you don't want a, a, such a large uh, strike difference to affect uh, your calculation. And um, what it also means is that that's especially true um, in modern markets or in the current market environment, that since the strike range will grow with the uh, volatility itself, so the level of the VIX, it actually means that whenever the VIX goes up, you will include more options and therefore there is additional uh, complexity in what the VIX will do in comparison to um, just uh, in comparing implied volatilities for single options. And um, I think uh, these are just uh, some of the, the 
initial talking points you have to think of, but what you actually have to think of is how does the VIX change, not how is it uh, calculated. So the changes of the VIX are even more important, obviously, for your portfolio construction, but also for your risk uh, measurement and uh, estimates. And that's actually the, the crucial part to understand how the VIX will change from its current uh, um, value to, to its possible next value. And then I hate to simplify things because then you always miss nuance. So feel free to disagree with me. But a simple way of thinking about what the VIX is, index is, it's a calculation of a strip of options, both posted and calls on the S&P, that is showing implied volatility, which then translates to 30-day forward-looking volatility or variance on the S&P 500. So therefore, like, and then it's an annualized number. So we're just, it's more about looking what's the 30-day forward variance of the S&P. And I use specifically variance because I think a lot of times, like why you said you don't like the idea of a fear gauge, is variance is both to the downside and the upside. So it, that's, that's part of the calculation. It's not just only when markets sell off. And so do you disagree with kind of like the, the simplification there before I move on to my next question? No, you actually uh, phrased it much better than I could. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, that's one of the key points that people tend to forget. Uh, and when they think about the VIX, they actually think about it, it in terms of volatility. And yes, it's quoted in volatility terms, but it actually it is the implied variance of, of the S&P 500. So in, in simplified words, you could say it includes all possible paths that the S&P could take um, over the next uh, 30 days. And the reason why that is important is because people like to compare the VIX with the current realized volatility of the S&P 500 or use it as a proxy to, to forecast how much the, the S&P will move. But if you think of it, um, that's a bit of an unfair comparison because obviously the implied variance will always be higher than the volatility of an asset simply because of the way um, the, the option market is priced and also uh, due to the, the, the probability, probability distribution of the, the returns of the S&P 500 being very skewed uh, with uh, high fat tails. And it's understandable but when a neophyte comes to like the VIX market and they look at that VIX index, they think that's a representation of the fear gauge. And they're always looking at percentage moves and not point moves that we, we tend to always talk about. But um, part of that consideration that they don't realize is the VIX index is untradeable. And so we needed to create a futures market and a term structure to a futures market that that's actually what you can how you can trade the VIX. You can't actually trade the VIX index. So as soon as we create a term structure, that term structure obviously is going to be in contango or backwardation. But then now you create maybe a different relationship to the, actually the S&P 500. So talk to me a little bit about the relationship between VIX and S&P 500. Yeah, so here also it was one very important point that people unfortunately also tend to, to ignore uh, often. Namely, that uh, the relationship between VIX and S&P is not percent changes S&P, percent changes VIX, and you should actually never think of the VIX in percent changes. So if somebody tells you the VIX spiked 40%, you could very likely ignore whatever follows that statement. Because what really matters is how much the S&P has changed and in relation to that, how much volatility has gone up or down. That means um, how many points did the VIX move. So the point change of the VIX is just the percentage change uh, of the S&P 500 in volatility terms now, um, multiplied by 100. And that relationship is actually very clear. So if you think of the option market and the way how implied volatility is priced in the current market environment, but that has to some degree been true more or less since uh, the stock market crash in 1987, you have higher implied volatilities on the downside than you have on the upside. So that means if you look at the current at the money volatility, let's say it's 10% and annualized, and you look for 30 days, and if you look at the 1%, uh, out of the money on the downside, uh, input volatility it might be at 11%. So what that tells you is that if the market would move down 1%, the S&P, 
the VIX index would move up one point as a basis uh, scenario. So that skew actually predicts the relationship between the S&P 500 and the VIX without any change in volatility. So nothing has happened here. Actually, it's just a mechanical result of the calculation uh, formula of the VIX index. And this this link this link means uh, we have to uh, compare these percentage moves of the uh, S&P with point moves in the VIX index. And what that also means is that you have a very stable correlation between the VIX index and the S&P 500, which will be negative because these out of the money uh, put um, volatilities are higher than the at the money volatility, as long as the actual change in volatility is not exceeding what the S&P 500 would do translated via this uh, volatility skew. And um, the second part can be a dominant factor and will be a dominant factor over time. So especially in the extremes, if the VIX is very low or if the VIX is very high, uh, it, it's very likely that uh, these uh, exchanges in actual volatility, so what happens once the S&P has gone down 1% with the implied volatilities of that option that were previously at uh, a negative uh, minus of 1%, does it change or does it stay the same? That that second component can change a lot and it will start dominating once uh, once the VIX hits extremes, but also if uh, market makers react to that uh, change in the S&P 500. But I would say on average and um, for most uh, uh, periods in time and also in for most volatility environments, the first part defines the, the correlation between the S&P 500 and the VIX. The second part is what I would call the volatility of volatility because that's the actual change in volatility. And I think that's actually the more interesting part, um, not just to talk about, but also to, for trading perspectives and also, to be honest, to some degree for hedging perspectives for your portfolio. because. The first part is really just a mirror image of the S&P 500. What that means is if, if you buy a VIX exposure, you have automatically a negative ex exposure to the S&P 500 and the other way around. And um, to, your, to your other question regarding the term structure, so obviously since the VIX is not tradable, you, you would have to think of some way how to translate uh, this, uh, this, these uh, two components into actual VIX changes. And to some degree, you could argue, since you could create a portfolio where you both short the S&P and short the VIX or long the VIX and long the S&P in that ratio that offsets the changes of the S&P 500, that is really the second component, meaning that uh, the volatility of volatility that will determine the, the the term structure, the steepness of that term structure, whether it's in contango or backwardation. And um, for that part, it's maybe worth noting that if you look at it isolated, so the second component, it's it's actually, it has a very interesting uh, um, characteristic. So it, you would think of volatility being, being mean reverting, but actually that's pretty trending. So um, volatility tends to, volatility of volatility actually tends to go up. It's, it actually has to do that, uh, by the way, because um, since the S&P 500 mostly also goes up, if you translate that via the skew, as we just discussed before, that that creates downward pressure on the VIX. So unless we have something that offsets that, the SMB or the VIX index would go negative at some point. So while that's more a mechanical point, um, it's actually interesting to 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 look at those numbers. And um, also from a from a distribution perspective, obviously the this this uh, the second component has um, a lot of uh, factors built in. So the the question. The level of the, the VIX is important for, for the direction that the, that the second component will take, but also um, the flows of the option market will, will have a very important impact. Yeah, Ramon, I want to put a pin in Volavol for a second because I want to come back to it. But, uh, you know, you started pointing out, okay, that some of the trickiness of actually trading volatility strategies is volatility is mean reverting, but volatility also clusters. So people are like, wait, what does that mean? And then, you know, there's a lot of people that say uh, volatility is a bimodal distribution, right? We have low vol environments where 
the average vol is like, say, in the low teens, or we have high vol environments where we have a phase shift into a sustained higher vol environment where maybe the average volatility is in the low 20s. But I would say it has a trimodal distribution because you also have the vol spikes. And so it's it's very tricky to trade volatility due to those those kind of scenarios. And 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 the point is, is after a spike, it can rein revert so hard in your face that you you just lose all the gains you just made on, on the spike if you were long volatility. But before we get deeper into that, I almost want to bring up, you know, a lot of people know about ERP, equity risk premium, but there's also VRP, volatility risk premium. How are those related or does a lot of that volatility risk premium come out of the term structure? So I would also say the VRP, there are also multiple definitions for that. And maybe I'll just give mine to, to, to before I give you my view on that, because otherwise I think it's a bit complicated to follow. So I think uh, the way I would define the VRP, the volatility risk premium would be the current implied volatility of the S&P 500 minus the past realized volatility of the S&P 500. And so these two things are more or less directly comparable. And I think actually they are to some degree exchangeable because if you think of a portfolio where you would try to replicate the, the a long position in the stock market, which would presumably earn the equity risk premium, the way you would do it is you would sell a put and you would buy a call. Now, from a risk perspective, if you buy a call, your risk is very limited. You only risk the, the premium. So I typically would argue how much can you earn with something that is zero risk? Well, very likely only a very little return, a risk-free return. And then you have a second instrument, which is the short put, which carries all the downside risk of the stock market. Because if the market goes down, you will lose on that position more or less as much as you would have lost in the in the underlying, just with the offset of the small premium. So that premium should actually encompass the entire volatility risk, uh, equity risk premium, because in the long run, in uh, that's where the risk come from. So in order to keep the risk parity the same, the short put position actually should cover the equity risk premium. Now, it also has to cover or should cover a slight small additional risk premium, which is more a valuation premium, because if the stock market goes down and then up again, you could have um, the same return. You would not care probably in your equity portfolio, but you have this uh, temporary uh, risk in the in the option where you can, it can mark, be marked really against you. So if you have a volatility spike, for whatever reason, you could have losses that are in excess of what the underlying loss and therefore, there is an additional premium there. And so, again, in theory, um, it, the volatility risk premium should be the equity risk premium plus something in addition. Now, this has been a very popular theme in the past. That's why there was lo- there were large inflows into these uh, option selling strategies. Obviously, if too many people start doing it, that second part gets really small. And maybe even that first part gets too small. And we have seen underperformance uh, in such strategies um, in the recent past. But more to your question of the... Oh, that will be then in the VIX. So I would not say that the the VIX is a, a symbol of the volatility risk premium. That already is the forward volatility risk premium because that's a, um, a slightly different part. And as I said, I think that that premium is more associated with the with the volatility of volatility risk premium rather than the the actual equity risk premium, even though they are also connected. Yeah, like a simplification of VRP is you know implied volatility minus realized would give you volatility risk premium. But also, I think naively or, or an oversimplification, a lot of times people would say that, and we'll get into what relative value VIX trading is and, and market neutral, is that sometimes you're isolating that term structure of the VIX futures and you're just earning rolled yield. What would you say to like that oversimplification? Well, so the rolled yield also is a yield. And uh, the yield that you earn here is, uh, is as I said, more this, uh, the VIX term structure uh, risk premium is exactly this volatility of volatility risk premium. So um, the way I, I can uh, try to simplify it or think of it in, in simple terms is if you think of how the markets in general behave and how they, they react to any kind of news, 
um, it's very obvious that short-term uh, instruments react more sharply than longer-dated instruments. So if you have uh, something, uh, yeah, now is we are almost at 9/11 again. If we, if we repeat such an event, obviously it will have a very sharp impact on that very day um, and uh, for the foreseeable future. But the question is, how does it affect something that's that's 10 months out? And it's probably uh, not as big of an impact on those longer-term valuations. And therefore, the term structure of the VIX, which will, which is up to a year uh, for in forward volatility, will react very differently among its individual um, strips. So the, the short-dated uh, VIX futures would react very sharply to that uh, to that um, uh, event, whereas the longer-dated ones would not react to, to the event. And so, if you try to think of the role yield that you can achieve in the in the VIX term structure, what you really are earning here is a compensation for event risk or for short-dated uh, volatility risk, and um, therefore. It is again associated with the underlying equity market and that the risk premium that you cover in that equity market, but there's the second component where you also carry the risk of a volatility spike. And that's what you're being comp compensated for. And, you know, I've been burying the lead talking about uh, volatility relative value trading. So what is volatility relative value trading? Well, these these instruments that we had been talking about, I think um, one of the nice things about the S&P 500 and the VIX and uh, the options around uh, those those instruments is that they all carry the same original basis risk. So the S&P 500 realized volatility is what uh, I would con consider the basis risk here. Um, and now we have different uh, products that have this risk somehow baked into their price calculation. But however they exactly do it, but they're all somehow um, based on the same uh, same basis. And um, now that also means that you can model them according to that uh, that uh, combined uh, uh, basis risk, and they should all follow more or less the exact same uh, rule set. So if uh, the realist volatility in the S and P 500 is high, the VIX index should be high, and there should be some reaction in the in the VIX futures, and there should be some reactions in the options on on uh, both of those instruments. And um, what that means is you can construct a portfolio that has no exposure to the underlying risk, so that can uh, mitigate the risk that you would have otherwise in the S&P 500, and just trade the one that has a relative mispricing. What that means is that has the highest uh, that price for that particular risk, according to your own model, that you're trying to cover. So as an example, if the risk is that the S&P 500 would go down, you could look for an instrument that seems to offer a very attractive uh, Let's call it roll yield as you were using it before in the VIX term structure, and you could look for another VIX which has a less attractive roll yield, and they both will to some degree cover that that uh, that change in the S&P 500 to varying degrees. Obviously, as mentioned, the longer dated VIX future would have a, a lesser exposure to that to that small uh, to that VIX S&P 500 decline, but it will still have some exposure to it. And so now you can construct a portfolio between various uh, components, either. Uh, individual VIX futures on the term structure or between the S&P 500 and the VIX, VIX index or between options on the S&P 500 and the, the VIX uh, to, to try to isolate uh, only the, the differences in that pricing of that, uh, that uh, basis risk. And uh, by doing so, what you should achieve is a position that is more or less independent of the actual S&P 500 and just tries to focus on identifying the most rich, richly or poorly priced instrument in, in that universe. And so classically, if I think about uh, just a vanilla trading strategy to think as a toy model to give us an intuition pump is people like you referenced earlier, go short, short or long, long, right? People will short the S&P futures and short the VIX futures and, they, and they're looking for that pairs trade and trying to figure out the relative value there. 
or they'll go long the front month VIX futures and long the S&P front month futures. But the key to that is the ratio that you you combine for your S&P and VIX. How do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I try to explain the, the relationship between the VIX and the S&P before with that slope of the volatility skew. Just as a repetition, the slope of the volatility skew just means, in my view, the difference between the at the money strike of uh, the current uh, S&P 500 30-day option universe versus uh, the input volatility of, uh, let's say, strike 1% uh, lower, uh, and you compare those two volatilities and you divide it by 1%. And that, what that gives you is the the ratio of how much, or so, sorry, the, of how much the VIX will move up in points for every 1% decline in the in the S&P 500. Now, this assumes no change in volatility. What that means is they should isolate you purely from, uh, if you choose a hedge ratio that's according to this exact number, this, this would mean you hedge out the, the changes to the VIX that are based on the S&P 500. Now, the problem, obviously, is that volatility will also change. So in your world, if you are just trading the S&P against the VIX, you would have to come up with um, an estimate or a sensitivity of how much volatility actually react to that change in the S&P 500. So either you have uh, a statistical model, you can have also some just some assumptions. Um, uh, originally, there were... There were um, there was a famous paper by Emmanuel Derman uh, back from, I think it's the 90s, uh, where he claimed there, there are three different uh, regimes. Um, whether that's true or not is, is a longer discussion, so let's just keep it at that. But uh, you have to come up with the second sensitivity, meaning you have to have an idea how much of a volatility actually change when the S&P starts moving in either, of, in either of the directions. So both on the upside, and it will, it will change differently in the upside than it changes on the downside. But you should have an idea there. And then third, you should also have an idea how much the VIX future will actually change. Because as you mentioned, the VIX index is not tradable. So you will trade that VIX future, which will be a forward future, forward of the VIX. And um, that will be sensitive towards the VIX index, but to varying degrees, depending on its remaining lifetime mostly. So um, if it's uh, 10 days before expiration, it will react very different, differently than if it is uh, 30 days before expiration. And so based on that, you should uh, obviously have uh, a model to cover that the difference in time, but also uh, yeah, there are some other inputs, more complicated inputs too, but let's keep it simple in just in time uh, too when constructing that uh, that combination. Yeah, I think that's a, a key insight is you have to worry about the time frame that you're trading, how close you are to expiration. Because I think, you know, when people learn about that intermarket spread or, or they read stuff on the internet, they think, oh, I just, you know, short three VIX contracts for every contract to S&P. But as you and I both know, sometimes it's one to one, sometimes it's nine to one. Like it, it varies dramatically and it's really getting that ratio right that's the killer or the real input that people are worried about that strategy. Another way to simplify these strategies that you touched on earlier is this calendar spread. And so to use another toy model, you could be long front month VIX and maybe three months out, you're, you're short three contracts of back month VIX and you're trying to create a market neutral or trying to maybe isolate some of that roll yield and you can be market neutral relative value, but then if you saw a spike in the VIX, you're going to take advantage of that that front month volatility in that spike. Is that a fair way of assessing it? And then I think part of that is like you started alluding to is your that long front month, your long volatile. Yes. So the the way you described this trade here, where you would trade a, a different number of contracts in in the front and the back month, can be a way to express this relative value trade too. So what do you have to keep in mind when you do that? When you do that is that you want to cover or you want to include uh, the same exposure to the S&P 500, otherwise you will create a bias here. So 
um, you would have to first have an, an idea or estimate of how much each of these individual VIX switches is exposed to changes in the S&P 500. That would be your baseline. That should be kind of aligned. Otherwise, as I said, you will have a bias towards changes in the S&P 500. But what it leaves you with is uh, exposure to vol of vol. So um, if you have this volatility spike, depending on the ratio you have chosen, you can either make or lose money depending on your positioning. And um, so what you really have to figure out is in, in such a in, in such a portfolio construction, how sensitive your portfolio is to uh, a volatility spike. So how sensitive are the two VIX futures that you're trading uh, to a change in, in the actual volatile, not just in, in volatility. And um, that ratio will also never be stable. It's uh, it's uh, it has also has its own dynamic. So typically, the the front month VIX future is also more much more liquid than the back month. So it's uh, it will receive uh, a lot more attention than those back months, uh, both in terms of trading costs, but also in terms of the actual moves. And uh, well, it can be it can be tricky to make some some model assumptions here uh, for the later months. But uh, overall, I would say the way you trade those two separate strategies. So short VIX, short uh, S&P or long VIX, long S&P against the calendar spread where your long one expires and short another, they have a slightly different risk profile. So while both of them expose you to to um, some kind of volatile exposure, they do it in a different way. And um, I would say both of their advantages and disadvantages, you, you have to weigh each uh, situation. But overall, we as a company, we do both. Uh, it depends a, a bit on, on the environment when you would prefer which one. Part of that, do you think VVIX is a good number for volatility of volatility, or you prefer to use your own cal calculations? So I prefer to use my own calculation. Um, the VVIX, I think it gets really complicated with the VVIX. And at some point, I heard discussions that they were planning on having options on the VVIX. <laughs> so if you, if you think of, um, if you just start at the S&P 500, and you start thinking what the VIX is. So you have first, you have a volatility estimate for the S&P 500, which will go into the options on the on the uh, S&P, that uh, those, those options on the S&P get aggregated into a VIX. Now you have options on the VIX, which include obviously also the volatility of the VIX with some additional risk on. So the VVIX is already, let's call it the third derivative or fourth derivative of the changes of the S&P 500. And um, therefore it gets it gets really complicated to to keep in mind what it actually is doing in, in regards to changes in the underlying. And um, that said, again, the VIX, Calculation is not a calculation for volatility. It's actually a calculation for variance. And the VVIX uses the exact same calculation. So now you have the implied variance of the implied variance of the S and P five hundred. And um, if you if you if you're still with us here, then um, maybe you should use the VVIX. Otherwise, I think uh, it's better to use a more simple simple model. I personally think, um, at least from my um, modeling experience. I think it's much easier and more straightforward to try to isolate those two effects. So the one is the impact of volatility directly by the skew on, on the VIX, and the second is this wall of wall model, because um, otherwise you can easily get lost in that modeling process. And so that's kind of the traditional way of thinking about uh, volatility relative value or volatility arbitrage, or whatever name people want to use, is these calendar spreads or intermarket spreads. You're also doing something a little bit differently is you're kind of using options as well. Talk to me about how you think about using options that in, a, in an accretive way for your portfolio. Well, so I, I like to approach the portfolio from both a risk and also a return perspective and risk mostly dominates. But if you think of um, various scenarios, especially uh, when, when you're long the VIX, the, the problem here always is that you have usually a strong negative carry against you. And 
it's very costly to be long weeks, it's very prolonged periods of, uh, periods of time. If you just look at the VXX as a, as a sample reference, uh, yeah, if you look at the long-term chart, I think with, without the, with, with risk adjust, with, with uh, the adjustments they did, it's, it's down like 99% or 99.9%. And um, that's uh, obviously a bit of an unfair representation because uh, you should, in theory, keep a constant investment there, not not just uh, buy it once and keep it forever. But the main problem is that even on a short-term, uh, shorter-term perspective, you have a strong negative carry. And so if you would create a, a portfolio where you're long the VIX and long the S&P, as an example, to take one of your simplified um, uh, portfolios, relative value portfolios, I'd be happy for. What that would mean is that you are kind of isolated against changes in the in the S&P 500. So let's just say it doesn't change at all. Now, but what would happen to the VIX if the S&P doesn't change at all? It would not remain unchanged. It would probably decline. And what that means is you actually still have negative carry in this environment. And so I mostly like uh, to add option exposure in this environment. So if I'm long the, the VIX, I think it's uh, very important that you, you think of your cost of only that position too, and how much can you give up in terms of your potential gains in, in a down market by selling some optionality uh, on the S&P 500 here too, meaning um, using the options on the S&P to offset some of the negative carry in in, uh, in the long VIX position helps you to to mitigate that, that drag that you have uh, that otherwise can be really uh, brutal for your portfolio. And you frequently talk about uh, your secret sauce, and without getting into the secret sauce, right, is identifying mispricings in in this relative value uh, trade. How do you think about those mispricings? Are those those kinks in the curve that you think are are mispriced based on your models, and and that's giving you an indication of where maybe supply and demand flows are? How do you think about identifying those mispricings? Well, so first of all, obviously there is no obvious mispricing, so it's not like there is this huge uh, spike in the, in the, the three month weeks future that nobody else can see and that you can take big advantage of. That hadn't been the case, not even in uh, in uh, 2005, uh, even then it was uh, kind of smoothly shaped. What you have to think about more is in, in relative terms. So the real, the real question that I typically face is which or is any of the VIX futures attractively priced in regards to the risk that the S&P 500 uh, poses? So is it be- is it good to, to be short VIX versus owning the S&P or is it better the other way around? And um, these uh, perceived mispricings, they, they, they can take uh, shape in, in various forms. So usually what is the larger driver to, to a selection is the, the risk involved and so the risk of the volatility market, as we know, is not only the fluctuations that we see, but it's mostly that spike that uh, we're, 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 I've been talking about before. So how likely is it that we will have a volatility spike, that uh, volatility spike usually um, will take form in ter- you know, will take the form of two events that will, will happen at the same time. The first is a, a big move in the underlying, but then also a big sh- uh, shift in, in that wall of fall. So yeah, it can be uh, caused by flows. It will, it will be caused by positioning uh, both uh, both in, in the VIX futures themselves or the VIX options to, the, to that uh, extent and also the, the underlying markets or the S&P 500. So in order to identify them, what you really have to have is, is a, a, a kind of sufficient picture of the entire market. So how, how is the option market positioned? How is the VIX market positioned? How do you explain this role yield that you, that you can see in the term structure of the VIX with those risks associated? And these risks as mentioned before, are very different for the various lifetimes of the of the um, of the VIX. And now, what you then do is 
Once you have this overview, you try to, to put it down to a number. So now I have a, a risk estimate per week's future, let's call it that way. Now I can compare my, my return estimate for every week's future with that risk estimate for every week's future. And by doing so, I, I can see where they're all fairly, meaning very similarly priced, or where discrepancies in that risk-adjusted pricing between the individual VIX futures. That will allow me to then select one that is the most attractive. If they are dif significantly differently priced, or if they're not differently priced, I will have a very small or no position that can also happen. But uh, for most of the time, it's usually the case that there is um, some kind of uh, difference between the individual futures in terms of pricing. Mostly driven, obviously, by the shorter dated contracts because they are also the more active uh, contracts. But uh, it can it can happen in, in any contract. So um, on average, we're 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 trading not just the first two months; we also trade the third and fourth month uh, very actively. Do you think that the price is an elegant proxy given your models, where you see where that supply and demand is, where then you don't necessarily need to track over-the-counter um, structured products or market maker positioning, you actually are seeing that in the price or do you try to track both? So we do track both. We don't track the OTC market too much, but uh, we do track the, the positioning in, in, in the market maker positioning and um, in general the option market uh, as a whole. But uh, I think uh, what one should keep in mind when looking at the S&P and the VIX in, in general is that these two instruments are among the most liquid instruments in the world and especially in regards to the volatility market there for sure among the most uh, um, liquid. And so they are the ultimate hedging tool for anything. So you, you get some, you've got some volatility exposure, they need to hedge, and you will probably end up doing it in one of those two markets. And so if uh, you see these huge option flows uh, going into, let's call it uh, some kind of meme stock or even some kind of big tech name, uh, chances are high that eventually some of that risk will be represented in either the S&P or the VIX as well. And uh, that means you have to, at least have an idea of how these markets influence the the S&P and also the VIX, um, because ultimately that's where the liquidity is and that's where people will turn to the hedge. And I want to start uh, making this a little more pragmatic and touch on you know the, the issues or trickiness of building models to trade volatility, or even looking at you know a backtest or, or thinking about the different regimes we've had in volatility. So from 2004 to 2011 was kind of one regime, and in 2011 we started to see advent of the the VIX ETPs, which changed a lot of the liquidity of the markets. And then from that, like 2012 to 2018, when we had Volmageddon at the beginning of 2018, that was kind of a different market during that ETP run until we had Volmageddon. And then from Volmageddon to now is a very different market. Can you kind of like walk me through like this is when you're thinking about um, running a backtest or, 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 or running, thinking about developing a program. Those are three very different regimes. And, and volatility is a constantly changing environment that makes it very difficult to run any sort of backtest. I 100% agree. So the, the problem with the VIX in general is that the first period, 2004 to 2008, but well, sorry, 2011, was such an illiquid period for the VIX products themselves that it's, it's very difficult to actually make any meaningful assumption based on these real prices that you see. So you, what you would have to assume is you would have to assume a slippage model that is independent of... Um, of the, the experience that you had back there, or even if you didn't have any experience, just because um, it was very difficult to trade in that environment. And the VIX itself was way too calm and uh, the volatility of the VIX was too little. And so it was a very advantageous position. If you managed to do that, to just be short the VIX and short the S&P or just be short the VIX, you made money very easily because uh, of the way it was priced. 
And with the advent of those uh, ETPs, uh, things changed drastically because first the VIX became more, li more liquid, the VIX options re received more attention. Um, they had been the more dominant product um, anyway, but uh, I would say the ETPs gave this the whole complex a new a new boost. And um, at the same time, the option market also underwent a, a large change too. So I mentioned this uh, risk equality beforehand, uh, where people really got uh, drawn into into selling volatility as an as an equity replacement or as a yield enhancement. And uh, these strategies were rather small, so typically, actually, you would think that the marginal or the buyer of a of a of a put option is uh, somebody who has exposure in the equity market already who wants to wants to then, uh, protect that. But all of a sudden, or actually more gradually, to be honest, uh, these these uh, option selling programs uh, started to to gain uh, traction. And um, what that did to the market is that uh, the it also changed the the, the risk. Um, profile of the entire market a bit so uh, without trying to get into too much detail if you think of uh, how the market reacts to uh, a big sell-off so the market maker as a first uh, market participant will start hedging its exposure more or less instantaneously so you will uh, try to be delta neutral um, meaning if he's if um, if he has a trade with the market it's kind of uh, will enforce volatility if he trades against the market it will it will dampen volatility but then you also have the other side and these large sellers of volatility they usually they hold held on to the position for some uh, to some degree, but at some point they just dumped all of it to the market. And the problem with doing that is that it creates these abrupt uh, regime changes, uh, which we also saw to some degree in, in 2018 at the Walmageddon, but which had kind of led up to that already before. And so I can think of a day in 2015, to August 2015, where due to some I don't even know what the original basis uh, scenario was. I think something in China happened. That uh, the the S and P sold off really rapidly going into the market and then recovered very quickly too, and um, we saw these huge uh, gaps in 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 the in how the the market moved and I would say some of those gaps were also attributable to to people trying to cover their their option positions, and um, that all said, the way that it has impacted the entire market is that especially the slope of the this volatility skew has changed drastically over time. So if we think of that ratio, and I will simplify it here, so the ratio just being how many points does the VIX move up if the S&P goes down by 1%, that has changed from, if we just use that skew slope, from 0 0.8 in the in, in the early 2000s to 1.4 uh, nowadays, so it has more than doubled. What that means is the, the volatility of the VIX also has to increase substantially, and it has to increase substantially just because of that. So if you compare these various periods of time, Unless you keep track of all these uh, these changes, it's very easy to to make assumptions based on an environment that you saw back then that is just not the case uh, in in the current environment anymore, and um, that will make strategies that might have worked back then look very good during those periods. But going forward, they might not work the same way simply because the market dynamics has ch have changed drastically, and um, I think. Um, one of the the, the tricky, most tricky parts in in dealing with vol in comparison to dealing with uh, more classic asset classes like equities is that you have to be aware of all these changes and they're very material to to the underlying uh, process. So it's a it's a it's a very time consuming and uh, and tedious job to do it, but I think it's necessary in order to to actually make any kind of uh, meaningful simulation. If I think back uh, almost like a decade ago, and I hope there's these things floating around the internet, and I hope they're not, but they probably still are. The idea was it was trying to teach retail how to trade VIX, right? And it was as simplified as 
uh, if VIX is in contango, go short the VIX. And if it's in backwardation, go long. And then uh, a, a better version maybe would be like you hedge with two contracts of S&P versus one contract of VIX. But as we know, like these things don't work out. So I want to use some very illustrative purposes of times we've seen over the last few years where I want to like kind of talk about how those trades kind of work, but without necessarily talking about the returns of your specific program to give people a little bit of uh, an idea of how difficult it is to trade VIX. Like if you were just going long in, in backwardation and then it mean reverted on you, you're going to get your face ripped off. So like, for example, let's, let's even start with, you know, Volmageddon, February 5th of 2018, you know, VIX spiked, but if you didn't monetize it properly, it mean reverted just as quickly. Like what were like, try to walk me through kind of like just a general PL, not like with your program about how a lot of volatility traders saw what happened in February of 2018. So 2018 was a, a special situation. I don't want to say unique because obviously we never know whether it will repeat yeah. itself, but uh, the buildup was, uh, I think, uh, very special in that way that uh, 2017 was actually the, the outlier year because volatility was so low. And I think 2018, this Volmageddon event is uh, the prime example why you should not use a percentage change of the VIX. So the VIX, yes, it doubled uh, on that day, but it only doubled because it came from a low number. Yes, it did go up a lot. And um, even absolute terms, it was one of the biggest moves or the biggest move, but um, it's still different than the uh, thing of doubling. Now, in terms of um, capitalizing on those gains, so the simple strategy where you just buy when the, the term structure inverts, if you think of it in a long time, and this, the data is, is freely available on the SIBO website, so you can uh, actually look it up, it actually loses money if you do that every time. So if you just buy the VIX uh, after the inversion and you keep it, even just for a number of days, you will actually over time lose money doing that because the VIX reverts. But if you think of it from a more general perspective, what does this inversion mean? So this inversion does mean that there has been a big uh, change in volatility and the reasons for that can be manifold. It can be a big change in the underlying or it can be a big change in the perception about the risk of the underlying. So this, well, this would be this volatile effect. And now in, in 2018, in, in, um, in February, uh, we had a combination of both. So obviously there was a big sell-off in the in the S&P, I think uh, it was down 5% or so that, that day. But then because of the positioning of the market beforehand, and in particular uh, uh, of these short uh, ETPs, there was also a huge change in actual uh, uh, vol itself too, which caused a, a gigantic spike in, in on, at least for that day. And um, now in general, if you think of your portfolio, if you let's just say you would have timed this right, and so you were long the, the VIX and you were long the S&P as a hedge if you want. So you, you very likely made money on that uh, day, the 5th of February. And now the question is, what should you do at the end of that day? And one of the first insights that you should have is that the VIX or the risk of VIX obviously grows with the VIX. So if the, the VIX at 10 is uh, much less risky, even though that sounds oversimplifying here, but uh, to some degree it's true. Uh, on average, than the VIX at uh, 20. So if the VIX spikes from 10 to 20, you should half your position in order to have the same risk exposure as before, assuming you want that risk exposure to to, to, to be the same. Um, on the other hand, what you also normally should factor in is how these individual components will behave. So in this particular case, uh, this more discretionary uh, thing, we, we don't trade discretionary, so it's my personal opinion, it's just not, uh, not what we, we implemented. You should ask yourself after the XIV imploded whether it, whether it will implode again tomorrow. And um, if that's not the case, then you already know the driver of your, your PL for that day. And then um, 
it's very likely that uh, you probably should exit more of your position. But mostly, it's not that easy to identify that uh, that uh, driver because typically it's it's uh, some kind of a bigger market move that that's taking place that you try to cover. So I think ultimately it really depends on what you want to achieve with with your hedge, whether you're trying to use this as a hedge for for an existing portfolio, whether you try to run it as a standalone strategy targeting an absolute return. Usually, what would happen is that uh, on that day when the after the volume or on Volmageddon, the risk of your underlying portfolio has also increased. And that therefore, you might actually need a, a larger edging position than a smaller edging position. So uh, it really depends on what you want to achieve with, with your with your uh, VIX portfolio. But to simplify or to, to just um, maybe repeat that, always keep in mind that the risk of the VIX increases with the value of the VIX. And so therefore, um, it's, a, it's just a probably more prudent to reduce your your overall position once you have a big big spike and um doing so might have helped you in that uh, particular environment like uh february 2018 and then to i'm going to stay in 2018 to talk about one of the other nuances of volatility trading and that's if we think about q4 of 2018 and let's just talk about like december in general so if people were like you know you had a sell off in s&p in december of 2018 and people would say well if you're a long volatility you should have had a commensurate uh return in pnl for example but to, to use an oversimplification, if VIX or forward volatility was implying a 1% daily variance and the S&P was just dripping down half a percent a day, you're not going to see that represented necessarily in a, in a long volatility position. So that's another one of the nuances of trading volatility. You can kind of get a little bit of a bleed if it's less than the expected variance. Yes. So first of all, if you think of a, a one month period where the S&P would go down half a percent every day, the realized volatility of the S&P 500 would be zero over that one month period. So you would think you would lose money on your long wall position. But I think uh, the key point that you're trying to make, and I 100% agree, is that just being long wall doesn't automatically mean you'll make money if the market sells off. It really depends on how the market sells off. And uh, just because the S&P was down 25% doesn't mean that volatility has to have gone up. And uh, in the case of uh, Q4 2018, at least for input volatility, this was actually true. So uh, the VIX did not do a lot uh, most of the most of Q4 because there was still rampant volatility selling. Every spike was sold very heavily. But on the other hand, the S&P just kept drifting lower. Um, and um, to some degree, it's because uh, the drift is usually not included in the, the calculation of uh, volatility, which we can also have a discussion about, which I think would be interesting. But on the other hand, um, it's a. Uh, it was also more a, a question of the of the then current flows in into the market. So people were very aggressive and eager to sell volatility, uh, considering it high, or thinking it was high, um, in uh, in at least in the beginning of Q4, and um, the S and P 500 just drifted lower, with the exception of I think it was the 24th of December, which was a half trading day where it then spiked, but it's difficult to really judge that particular day because um, it was half a trading day with almost zero liquidity, so anything can happen on such days. Another one I want to highlight is the uh, 2020 election. So it was a very unique period in that we had this echo of volatility from March of 2020, but we had this double echo of volatility where I like to say, from the previous election four years ago, a lot of people didn't predict Trump. And so that was an outlier move. So coming into the 2020 election, people are are fearing what they missed four years ago. So you had double echoes of volatility coming from March 2020 and the four years prior. 
So what that did is it was a, it was a, almost a known known. So when we were talking about like the VIX index is untradeable, well, going into that, you know, Q3, Q4 of 2020, the VIX term structure had a kink in the term structure because it was really pricing in that election volatility. So if somebody wanted to be long volatility going into that, they were finding a tremendous headwind. There was no easy trades during that time period. But you would see people, uh, you know, news media saying, you know, the VIX has spiked in percentage terms, which we both hate. And it's like, but the, the futures have not moved at all. Or actually, you're, you're losing money on your futures position. Talk to me a little bit about like the that the the kink in the curve when you have some a known known like a, a election vol around those cycles. So the known knowns, yeah, are more tricky to trade because, as you correctly mentioned, there was and there will mostly be already a price that compensates for for that uh, known risk. And in the the question of the election in twenty twenty, that was definitely the case. So. I, I, by coincidence, uh, was interviewed, I think um, I was in, in late summer 2020. And uh, there it was very obvious that it was re really expensive to, 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 to actually buy that kind of volatility. And um, uh, back then asked them what the, the easiest trade to actually hedge that kind of volatility would be, what was in my view to buy the next, uh, next date at the expiration because that was uh, a lot cheaper. And if there really would have been an upset in that election, it probably, in my view, would have lasted longer than just a, a, a week's time or something like that. But in, in general, I would say in uh, these event risks, it's less about an actual uh, distribution of returns. It's really about a, like a, a, a bimodal probability distribution. So either you have a big event on one side or the other, and uh, less so about uh, the bell-shaped curve of, of uh, possible events. And so in that particular instance, what you more likely could do more efficiently is um, try to figure out in at least in your opinion what the what the actual event risk is so what would this this risk translate into in terms of price move and then take rather isolated uh, action on 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 that move for you buy and sell uh, some volatility components that would benefit from from those events so let's just say you would expect a, a 10 percent decline then uh, not just buy the put uh, because that will be expensive but sell some some optionality too and buy some other optionality where you at least uh, uh, get com uh, compensated, but you, where you where you at least limit your your uh, negative carry and your negative costs for that kind of protection. Well, even in that though, somebody would go, well, if it was a, a known known and and volatility is so expensive, this was a perfect time to sell vol. But unfortunately, Trump was also a known unknown, and so it was like you could have you could have got blown out if you're if you're predominantly selling vol too. So that's what made it even more tricky, right? Yes. So. On the other hand, I would say selling volatility in that environment is also difficult because it, the volatility, uh, the way how these products are calculated, are that we're talking about a whole volatility distribution. So you're 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 selling only a weighted path. So that 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 ten percent or twenty percent uh, down move is only part of the calculation. And if that's really what you think that the impact will be, then and you have a very strong opinion, then that will would represent a higher volatility than what you could have sold in the market. Uh, on the other hand, um, obviously that would require you to be absolutely sure what will happen, and I'm I'm rarely that sure. You and me both. <laughs> so that's why I said uh, I think I would trade uh, something that has a limited uh, or more limited exposure to that high volatility, or one action that also people never not do not like to think about that often, or just not trade that period. So you can also just reduce your positions and uh, have a, a lesser position going into that event. And then an illustrative perspective of showing how hard it is for backtesting volatility is in in the 2008 great financial crisis, we had a, a several year period where we had that phase shift into a higher vol environment where we had a sustained higher vol environment 
that lasted several years after 2008, right? So March 2020 happens, the sell-off happens, and everybody goes, great, let me pull out my 2008 playbook. We should see a, a phase shift higher and a sustained high volatility environment for the next few years. But uh, not so fast. We had the, the, the fastest volatility crush in history. So it's like these are the nuances of like the, the past doesn't you know, repeat itself into the future. And so you can't really pull out any playbook for any sort of uh, scenario from the past. Is that fair? Well, I would say the history is still kind of a guide, but it will not be an exact playbook. So I think um, in both uh, cases, the up and the down moves of the, the VIX or the volatility market, I think 2008 was very different to 2020. So if you think of the reason why and what happened uh, in order to create this uh, this whole meltdown in, in the S&P, the first 2008 was a financial crisis that first took time to build. So it actually lasted a few years in, in build-up in terms of... Uh, all these uh, exposures to mortgages and uh, obviously then the problem surfaced quite quickly or rather quickly, but not instantaneously. So it was not like on a single day, the government announced uh, 10 banks uh, insolvent and then uh, the stock market tanked. It was like one after another. Versus in 2020, if you think of the actions taken, well, at some point government stepped in and said, well, we're closing down everything here. And um Therefore, the effect was immediate and people realized that the effect was immediate. But on the other hand, it is, well, I don't want to use the word easy because I don't think uh, dealing with a virus is easy either. But it seemed to be more apparent to people what would have to happen in order for markets to, to um, regain strength and for, for economies to reopen. And uh, there were these huge programs. Maybe that was the one lesson that uh, one could have drawn from 28 already that uh, once there is a big problem, there are also big programs and the bigger the problem, the bigger the, the financial aid program with the main difference that this time it actually went to people, not to not to companies, which uh, I think created some dynamics that uh, that are also very different from, from 2008. But what I'm trying to say is overall, it was less clear how the exit of the 2008 crisis would look like than how the exit of the 2020 crisis would look like. So for 2020, people were obviously having hopes for a vaccination, but also to some degree for that virus to, to not disappear, but to become less uh, severe because uh, eventually uh, people develop uh, some kind of uh, resistance to, to that virus too. Therefore, I would say it's they were just different, different kind of crises and therefore not really comparable. I would agree though that people were probably, me including, uh, very surprised on how fast... Uh, Things moved, and I remember internally I was asked uh, what would happen to our portfolio if the VIX touched 80, and I gave an answer. But I actually that was like in end of February, but I, I didn't really think about the likelihood of that happening. It was like okay, maybe that would be this and this, but uh, it happened two weeks later. And uh, at two weeks later, if you would ask me when when the VIX will go below below 30, let's just say I probably would not have said 2021. But it also happened. So it was uh, an amazing period of time. It's another reason to trade systematically. But coming back to, uh, you know, why volatility? Let's come back full circle. When I think about um, volatility relative value trades, they're some of my favorite trades, especially the ones that are incorporating protection, tail protection at the wings. Um, they're some of my favorites because I think about uh, maybe a, an app metaphor would be thinking about hunter gatherers, right? If you're a long volatility person, um, you're essentially like a, a hunter gatherer. You're you're out hunting for large animals, and so you may go days or weeks without getting anything. And then you you spear a large animal and you bring it home, and that feeds the tribe for for weeks or months. And so that's how infrequent those long volatility spikes. 
So what do you do in the interim? Well, that's the gathering portion, right? If you're trading relative value, hopefully you can make a little bit of income on that pairs trade or lessen the drag you get from being long volatility. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. And in, I may take it even further than hunter gather. You may be more hunting mastodons for how rare that long vo that that volatility spikes happen. So then you may go through years of starvation to get, to then feed yourself for years based on hunting that mastodon. But the key point that I'm really trying to get for is that that relative value is what can hopefully give you that income or keep you flat to only slightly negative while you're waiting for that vol spike to happen. Is that an absolutely terrible metaphor, or how do you think about it? No, I think it's a very fair assessment. So I, uh, as I say, it is also more or less exactly why I, at some point in my career, my career chose to have this relative value strategy rather than a pure tail risk or tier, pure long vol strategy. Because uh, I think um, we both understand, or we probably most people understand, the, the benefit of, of owning volatility in, in these uh, down scenarios. It's really difficult to stick with them during these long periods of, of uh, very smooth and calm equity markets where you just constantly bleed. And uh, to use your metaphor uh, of the hunter-gatherer, if you would just do hunting for those big animals, you might just starve at some point because uh, you, you don't find any. So I think uh, the relative value plays allow you to still maintain most of the characteristics of such a tail risk program or a, a long wall program, but they also give the flexibility to a more stable or at least not as, uh, as negative um, portfolio return during the rest of the time. And uh, that makes it a bit easier for people to to keep being interested in that in that space. And uh, unfortunately, in the past, if you think of the flows of investors into long wall products, they have usually been the highest directly after any big crisis. And uh, for me, that's uh, yeah. The, the similarity I usually give is that you're looking for this fire insurance once your house is burned down, which is fine. So I think for your next house, you should get fire insurance, but it will still don't this will still not help you rebuild your old house. Therefore, I think the, the crucial part is to to kind of have a, a a strategy in place that you can stick with or can live with throughout most times because you just don't know when the next uh, virus or the next uh, problem will arise and also not what it will be. And uh, you should be kind of prepared for that. And um, I think um, with relative value, you, you, you can capture most of that. You have a slightly different risk profile. You have this kind of... Uh, smaller risk so if the market moves down a little bit but not too much then you might lose money but on the other hand uh, you can uh, even participate in the up markets too and thinking about that risk profile let's like kind of put a finer point on it and thinking about a a pnl of a relative value vol trader that's also buying some tail protection as well as as they go along is you have kurtosis right and so to oversimplify for people we have gaussian curves that look like a bell curve where you basically don't have any tails right if you take that center point of a, of a bell curve and you pinch it and you pull it up, that's going to give you a kurtosis curve. So the, the distribution through the center is going to be much more, but then now you're going to have fat tails on the left and right side. So kurtosis shows you that there's fat tails, but then you need, you need to look at skew. And if you have skew to the right side of your PL, that's showing you that the fat tails are the right side. So your, your profit and loss is going to have more surprises on the right side. So ideally, you would have a high kurtosis and high right skew of a, of a PL because that's going to be very additive to a portfolio that may be filled with things that have left skew strategies, which is most of your implicit short volatility or long GDP assets. Is that an oversimplification of skew and kurtosis and, and thinking about how that relates to other strategies or how would, do you think about it differently? No, I think that is, is very much from my, my definition or explanation of how I would approach that the problem. So I think um, any typical asset that you have in your portfolio will have negative skewness, meaning you will have 
some outlier losses for whatever reason, if you think of stock market, if you think of um, yeah most other risky assets. Now you had bonds for a long time, which had positive skewness, but with yields going to zero or below zero, they actually are tilting towards negative skewness too, because we would have a large increase in, in, in yields, which is not uh, so likely, but it could happen. You would also have this huge down move in, in, uh, in, uh, in bonds. And if you have found an, a strategy or an asset that has large positive skewness, what that almost guarantees you is that it will be diversifying against anything else you have in your portfolio, because uh, that means you will have these outlier gains, and these outlier gains very likely will happen during the time when everything else is outlier losses. And so the overall combination of those instruments will be better. Now, it's almost impossible to have significant positive uh, skewness without excess kurtosis. So those two kind of go hand in hand. And I think the crucial part is to understand that all you really need is the excess positive skewness. The excess kurtosis just comes with that. So you have this these feather tails. Just try to avoid something that has excess kurtosis and negative skewness, because that means you will you will have something that uh, looks really nice until it doesn't. And then uh, you get a, a big negative surprise. I think, um, yeah, the long wall side is designated to, to be a, a positive skewness uh, portfolio construction piece. Um, now you just have to manage the, the negative carry. That's uh, what will define your overall uh, allocation and success, I think. And then for lack of a better term, you're essentially like a pod inside of a larger trend following firm. So I'm, I'm curious how you think about this. And, you know, when I used to back in the day, when I used to read the Market Wizards books, right? And you think about a lot of them were CTA trend followers. And, you know, they do obviously very well in trends, but they're like, where do we get hurt? They're like, we get hurt in mean reversion or they get hurt um, if they're on the long side of the trend and the market sharply corrects. Right. And they get caught in the wrong positioning or they get whipsawed. So I'm, I was always like, well, why wouldn't you incorporate those into your book? So essentially, is that the way you think about it? Is if I'm pairing with a, a longer term trend follower, if I have a, a mean reverting nature of relative value, but then I also have some tail protection. I'm I'm really covering both of the negative path dependency for a trend follower. Well, I would view it a bit, at least slightly different. So um, I would say that the trend follower also can have, and depending on his time horizon, most likely will have in, at some, in to some degree, positive skewness in, in his returns. So if you think of, to simplify it and bring it to one asset class, if you think of the equity market and you think of a sell-off, so unless the sell-off happens in one day, it will the, the trend follower will shift its position to be short the equity market at some point during that uh, decline, and therefore um, will will then participate negatively in in uh, in the further equity market decline. And um, typically, the way you, how most of the sell-offs I, I I can recall would work is volatility starts to to cascade, so you get a down move, volatility grows, the next down move is bigger, the next down move is bigger, the next down move is bigger, and so on, because um, that's basically how the risk models of the world work. And um, that's also how people will, will start positioning themselves. Now, that means if you have a very short dated trend follow, so there are people out there who do that on a, on a daily or, or even shorter time period, you will be very early in that in that, um, in that that uh, cycle, meaning you you can have even uh, skewness on daily returns. If you have a more medium or long-term trend follow, you will have this positive skewness on, on daily to monthly returns. And so if you think of a tail risk event of a one day event, most likely most trend followers will not capture that. Therefore, you would really need a tail risk product. If you think of uh, a tail risk event of something like uh, 2020 or 2008 happening, meaning prolonged uh, decline in, uh, in in risk assets, prolonged being anything from weeks to months to years, um, a, a trend follower will accomplish 
your goal of, of that tail risk protection too. I think um, from a combination perspective, what what uh, does a vault strategy add to a, a trend following book or why you should, could or should include both? I think uh, they do well in, diff- in slightly different scenarios. So I would say the the, the benefit of, of a uh, volatility strategy is that it can also benefit from these expansions in volatility of volatility, which will typically not be captured by a trend follower. To some degree, even one has to say that uh, it actually at least the way how most trend followers would structure their portfolio that is where the position is somehow, somehow inverse to the volatility of the asset, it will actually hurt them. Because if you think of uh, um, how they would then scale that short position, it means they would reduce their short position, the higher volatility grows, and therefore um, uh, actually have a, a slightly uh, concave uh, uh, return uh, profile there rather than uh, um, something that would expand in terms of, uh, uh, of even further declines. But other than that, I think the two can complement each other, especially on the on the timing perspective. So a very short-term trend follower, first of all, they're rare and mostly as difficult times because on the very short uh, term, it's difficult to identify trends, at least uh, in my experience. But for the more medium-term trend followers, it might be interesting to have uh, an addition of, uh, of more short-dated uh, wall managers in there. That can cover periods where their their markets has to, their their models still have to adjust to the the change in the trend. Got it. That's well said. And going back to what we stated at the beginning, you know, there's only a handful of traders at the inception of the VIX. So I really appreciate you allowing me to to pick your brain on your vast knowledge of how the markets changed over time and all the ways you implement trades. So I uh, just want to thank you again for coming on this this special volatility series. And with that, I'll hand it back to Niels. Thanks so much, Jason and Stefan, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed hearing about how you can get exposure to volatility as an asset class without having to be either a long or short volatility manager. And of course, I think it's fantastic that you can do this via a 100% rules-based and systematic investment process, as I hope you did as well. And if you enjoyed it as much as I did, make sure you go and follow Stefan's work at Don Capital, as well as the work that Jason do. As you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to volatility and we really look forward to exploring many more of them in our series as it continues. From Jason and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode as our journey into the world of volatility continues. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.